Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning uh, and welcome to this Heritage Foundation webinar. We're thrilled that you um, joined us today for what I know is going to be a very interesting discussion. My name is Joshua Mazervi. I am the Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we need to go through a few uh, housekeeping rules uh, before we get started. You should be seeing a slide there on your screen. But I will read these off for you. The session is being recorded. It will be emailed to you and posted on heritage.org events within 48 hours. We do uh, encourage participants to submit questions in the question box that you should see uh, on your screen. Uh, please remember when you are asking a question to identify yourself by name and organization. Uh, and do feel free to submit those throughout the webinar at any time, and uh, we will take them as we can. Uh, a reminder, all attendees are in listen-only mode, uh, so the only voices you'll be hearing are myself and, and our keynote, of course. Um, so without further ado, um, I want to um, say a, a few brief words about uh, Heritage's position on the Libyan conflict, and then we'll move into the main event. Uh, Libya has been in a civil war since 2011, as we all know. I think we also can all recognize that international efforts to which the U.S. has deferred have failed to persuade or pressure the warring sides to strike a sustainable political settlement. Foreign powers freely operate in the country, worsening the conflict and, in the case of American rival Russia, building in influence that challenges U.S. national interests. The Heritage Foundation has argued for years and continues to argue that the U.S. must abandon this failed approach to Libya and take leadership of international diplomatic efforts to resolve the crisis. The U.S. is the country best able to influence the combatants and coordinate foreign powers Libyan activities. Uh, to tell us much more um, about the situation in Libya um, is Mr. Muhammad Ali Abdallah. Uh, Mr. Abdallah, can you um, turn on your, um, your camera and join us, please? Thank you. Uh, I'll give a brief uh, bio for Mr. Abdallah, and then we'll turn it over to him for his remarks. So Mr. Mohammed Ali Abdallah is the political advisor for U.S. affairs to the Libyan government. For a number of years, Mr. Abdallah was a prominent member of the Libyan opposition. In 2012, during the first democratic elections held in Libya in over four decades, Mr. Abdallah won a seat in the General National Congress, Lib Libya's parliament. 
He was elected from the ninth district of Misrata, which is Libya's third largest city. During his term in office, Mr. Abdallah served as the chairman of the Financial Planning, Budget, and Finance Oversight Committee. Um, as a member in the Telecommunications and Transportation Committee, Mr. Abdallah led efforts to establish a regulatory body to oversee the telecom sector. Mr. Abdallah served as president of the National Front Party, which is the third largest political party in Libya, from 2012 to 2017. During the UN-led dialogue process, Mr. Abdallah served as a member of the Political Dialogue Committee, which resulted in the Libyan Political Agreement, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. He continued to play a significant role in the political dialogue amongst the different political factions and helped de-escalate conflicts, paving the way for consolidation of the Government of National Accord governance and the UN's return to Tripoli. Mr. Abdallah um, has multiple degrees from the University of Kentucky as well. Uh, so we are really, really fortunate to have Mr. Abdallah join us today. Um, and I know I'm personally looking forward to his remarks. I know they're, they're going to be beneficial for everybody. So Mr. Abdallah, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Josh. And thanks for the uh, Heritage Foundation and for everyone uh, uh, who was able to join us today. Uh, I hope that everyone uh, is doing well um, in these difficult times for many different reasons and that everyone is staying safe and uh, wishing all of you and your families uh, all the best. Um, so to, to the topic of today, uh, Libya, uh, is um, in some people's minds is a crisis. In other people's minds, it's an opportunity, uh, uh, positive and negative. Uh, so everybody has a different perspective and a different paradigm uh, when looking at the crisis. However, there's some factors that are pretty common and, and cannot be ignored. So some you know, foundation that needs to be established in order for us to be able to look at what's happening today uh, in order for us to be able to find a solution. And I think the uniqueness, uh, the unique factors that is, um, you know, that uh, is, is unique to Libya makes it very difficult to compare or analyze it, trying to correlate it to other conflicts. So it's a very popular thing to do. Many always try to simplify the situation by making analogies as Libya is the next fill in the blank. Or if this doesn't happen, then Libya will become just like fill in the blank. Uh, however, the, the social makeup, the geographic location, the political novice, uh, you know, of the Libyan people, the economic factors, and the modern history of very extremely damaging policies uh, provide for a very complex yet ripe uh, opportunity for a, a rags to riches uh, scenario. So this is something that I think motivates a lot of people who are involved, uh, and more importantly, it's that's what motivates a lot of Libyans such as myself uh, to be uh, vested in this, despite the complexities and difficulties and the challenges, is because of the rewards that are there and in addition to the responsibility that is there for those who have endeavored this path. Uh, today's session is not gonna dig into the past or history a lot, but I wanna focus on the current situation and, and where do we go from here. Uh, a lot of people you know, look at this from April 4th, 2019 coming forward, that is the first mistake. Uh, the onslaught by Haftar's militias represents a key moment in the post-revolution revolution transitional process. However, uh, and it's a very dark and destructive moment, unfortunately, because it cost over you know, 16 or 1,700 lives, uh, including innocent civilians, uh, women and children, over 200,000 IDPs and, and thousands more wounded, and billions and billions of dollars in destruction and lost revenue. Uh, however, it was also a moment when reality that many of us knew uh, was exposed to the rest of the world in real time uh, at a very high price, unfortunately. So what was exposed? It was you know, one of the biggest political Ponzi schemes in recent history, 
and I'll talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, this is a very important, uh, but a costly, like I said, deliverable that we gained from this crisis on April 4th. And, and that is that Khalifa Haftar's campaign uh, and backed by many, including as Josh mentioned, Russia, the UAE, players such as Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bashar al-Assad, Syria, uh, and, and even Iran and Jordan and others. Um, this was never a campaign, a campaign to combat terror or to rid Libya of extremism uh, or extremist militias or combat corruption uh, and political chaos, which are all objectives that all of us want to, uh, to achieve. However, this campaign was exposed uh, that it was definitely not that. Uh, it, is, um, it was actually in reality an attempt to consolidate and activate those evil factions that I described uh, under an, an oversight of, of, of an axis of evil led by um, or orchestrated by Russia uh, and funded by U.S. allies such as Saudi Arabia and UAE uh, and supported logistically by other allies such as Egypt and, and Jordan, unfortunately, which is all of this information is, is, is reflected uh, in the international, uh, sorry, in the UN panel of experts reports as well as other international organizations that have reported on this, including uh, media outlets, okay? Many would ask, you know, how can so many U.S. allies end up being assets that empower a coalition led by Russia and actually includes Iran and Syria? How, how could that happen? And I think many people in D.C. right now are scrambling to find answers to this question uh, of, you know, where did it go wrong? While others and hopefully more of, of those are scrambling to put things back in the proper context. And that's where we want to go with. Uh, some of the recent developments, key things that most of you have probably been following the news more now about Libya. But uh, Haftar's ambitions of carrying out a coup, its takeover Libya and becoming the solution, if, as he sold it, for all intents and purposes, has been thwarted, uh, if not completely ended. Uh, his militias and mercenaries have been defeated on the outskirts of Tripoli. They've lost control over many cities in the West, pretty much all of them, including Tarhuna, which was his uh, sort of uh, you know, a basket that was uh, his operations center. Uh, Al-Wutia Air Base, uh, which was the operation center for many of the mercenaries uh, fighting on his behalf and with him, um, led by Russia and others. Currently, military operations are being concentrated around uh, by the GNC, uh, by the GNA, sorry, forces and uh, on the outskirts of Sirte in the central area on the Mediterranean. Haftar's backers have either acknowledged his defeat and started looking at alternative plans, or have gone back to the drawing board in order to escalate the crisis to ensure. Uh, that a stable Libya you know, is never achieved. And then that is the ultimate goal for some players, such as Russia, I think, prolonging the crisis. And I'll talk a little bit about that here shortly. Uh, as long as this political vacuum is left by the U.S. government, taking a few steps back uh, is not, uh, and th th that's not reversed and swiftly, the alternative scenarios will only lead to worse outcomes for Libyans and for the U.S. and its allies as well. Uh, that would include a strong Russian military presence on the southern Mediterranean. Uh, that would include also going to uh, measures such as taking over control over one of the largest natural gas reserves, uh, adding on top of that, uh, that Russia provides most of the natural gas uh, to Europe. Uh, again, this is another opportunity for Russia to uh, put a stranglehold on, on the Europeans uh, and controlling the pipeline for illegal refugees coming into uh, Europe. So about Russia, very quickly, the objective, I think, as I mentioned, it's basically you know, prolonging the crisis. I don't think it's necessarily to see Haftar come out as a winner or to see the GNC, uh, sorry, the GNA uh, come out as uh, a victor here because at the end of the day, that's a very difficult balance. I think for Russia, it's basically to prolong the crisis to ensure that its traditional uh, uh, rivals don't come out on the up, on, uh, with the upper hand here. 
the intervention in Libya by Russia goes far beyond just Wagner. A lot of people use the company uh, Wagner and you know the whole uh, Concord, Concordia Group or uh, that private military company uh, logo. It goes far beyond that. It's a very comprehensive, in-depth, and well-thought-out campaign uh, of evil. It includes political intervention through uh, a troll bot network, uh, including you know you, you, everybody's heard of the arrest of Maxim Shugali on the in May of 2019, who was operating as part of a network. To do that, the recent deployment of 14 fighter jets and uh, different air force bases, and primarily in Al-Jufra, in the uh, central zone of Libya. These were assets by Russia relocated uh, from Syria. Uh, intelligence support, active duty, as well as uh, advisors, as well as other operational support has you know, been another uh, uh, method. Um, and then the financial and economic support, including alternatives and financial methods, uh, such as illegal drug trade, the black market, uh, the oil and, and others, you know, other minerals, and the illegal printing of currency, which was referenced uh, recently by a study uh, by a C, uh, C4 ADS, and that's something that is continuing uh, as we speak today. So the increase in Russian presence, as I mentioned, that threatens Libya directly. Uh, it, it threatens the U.S. strategy and objectives not only in Libya but in the region. And you know, how does a strong, race, uh, you know, strong Russian presence on the southern coast of the Mediterranean impact U.S. and its allies? I, I don't think I have to answer that question. I think it's a it's a huge threat. Finally, the um, you know what can be done? What is it that needs to be done immediately uh, in order to set the stage for a a, a better scenario going forward? I think first, increased diplomatic pressure, uh, pressure on allies to stop the military support, which continues despite the rhetoric and the messaging, including some of the tweets that we see from officials such as Anwar Gergash uh, talking about peaceful solutions and, and ceasefire, while these weapons continue to flow in, uh, funded by the UAE and other US allies. The second point is sanctioning not only Haftar, but his associates through US Treasury. Haftar is a US citizen, by the way. That's a very uh, some often overlooked fact. Uh, and it is something that uh, is, um, I think, provides the U.S. government a lot more tangible steps to take towards him and his network. Uh, so similar to what was done with the Assad regime, uh, the Caesar law that was uh, adopted by Congress, there is a Libya Stabilization Act uh, that is in the pipeline uh, within the House and the Senate, which uh, has a very strong bipartisan support. We've worked with uh, many, many people on the Hill. Some of you guys are online, I know, listening. Uh, that this particular uh, legislation has a lot of uh, a lot of benefits and has a lot of um, tangible steps that will actually set the stage for a very a very uh, successful rags to riches story, like I mentioned. And then strong public statement. Uh, you guys saw what a phone call in passing uh, by the White House uh, to Haftar did back in April 2019. And then subsequent statements, hopefully you know, on the right side, by the State Department, Department of Defense, uh, the White House, National Security Council, Ambassador Norland, and then uh, some Congress members uh, as well, primarily uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Ted Deutsch on the House side, as well as many, many others. Uh, Malinowski has been a very vocal as well in the past. So more public statements. A statement by a U.S. official goes far, far beyond just a press statement. It has a lot of impact, not only internally within Libya, but it has a lot of impact also on uh, the regional players and the proxy players. And then I think, you know, practical and tangible support for the UN political process. Upon securing military insurances, eliminating the, the threat of, you know, civilian targets, and this is something that we've been able to achieve, you know, thanks to our heroes who are fighting on the ground, the GNA, uh, forces uh, are made up of young Libyans who have this aspiration to be part of the success story. And they're sacrificing their lives 
and, and, and everything uh, that they have in order to engage in a process that they set out on in 2011 and unfortunately did not find the, light, the right level of support internally and externally uh, to, to, be, to turn this into a successful story. Yet this is still something that is within reach and the US is the primary, if not the only player that can actually make this a reality in a very, very uh, productive way. Um, Hafsar has been you know, in, you know, engaged as the primary representative of the East in the past. Now with his recent military defeats and his reality coming to the surface, I think we need to move past the fact that Hafsar is a representative of any faction in Libya. He's proven that he neither wants to be or can be part of any political solution and continuing to insist that he has to be not only a pillar in this, but have any part of this political solution going forward is a recipe for disaster. And finally, the US really needs to have an alternative track to diplomacy. And this needs to be led primarily by the US. Uh, can they do it alone? No, there needs to be a lot of allies uh, that have to work you know, with this, but we cannot pull all, put all of our eggs into this UN-led process alone because we've been down that path many times. Uh, banking on the UN track only will, you know, with a lot of unknown factors. And I'm definitely not ready to pull the plug on it or say, you know, this is not a, 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 a viable option. I still think it is the, probably the most viable uh, option long term. However, the margin for error uh, is, is very limited and the time available to experiment uh, is also very limited. So the previous lessons learned with the, we've had six uh, special representatives to the um, uh, Secretary General of the UN. You know, not all of them have been bad, uh, but at the same time, I think the, the task and the duty that they've been mandated with is almost an impossible task. The lack of political will at the P5 level, the permanent members of the Security Council is a primary issue. And, you know, is it worth taking the risk with an exclusive, quote unquote, um, you know, uh, UN track only without strong leadership? And the answer is no. So with that, I'll open up the floor for, for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Abdal. That was um, really interesting and, and helpful. I'm going to take uh, moderator's privilege here and, and ask the uh, first question. Um, there have been uh, news reports that some of the Turkish troops that have been fighting on the side of the GNA are actually Syrian militiamen, um, who have some of whom have links to uh, terrorist organizations in Syria. Uh, could you speak um, about that issue specifically? And uh, if those men are indeed um, in Libya fighting for the GNA, uh, does that concern the GNA? What What is the GNA's plan for trying to address that problem? Sorry about that. It is a it is a fact that the, the military activity in Libya um, is you know further you know made the, the situation more complex, and the presence of Syrian fighters uh, is just one little component that needs to be addressed, and it is a a consequence, an unfortunate consequence to a bigger problem. So the the attack started on April fourth. A military a bilateral military agreement was signed between Libya and Turkey uh, in November. So seven months later, and that came about after many, many efforts by the GNA to reach out to many allies, including the U.S., uh, in order to stop this attack. So fast forward, uh, you know, the, the, the makeup of the military presence and the military support, uh, some things you can choose and dictate and mandate, and some things you really can't. So when you've got uh, a militia 
with thousands of mercenaries from Russia, African countries, uh, and, and the billions of dollars and the, and the uh, military onslaught that was going on a stone's throw away from the capital, okay? As a matter of fact, you know, it reached a point where it was almost five or six kilometers away from the city center of Tripoli. Uh, you don't get to dictate uh, who comes to help you. So when you're sitting there being robbed and, and mugged and, and, and uh, criminals are attempting to kill you within your house and someone comes to assist you, uh, you're not gonna ask them for their ID and say, uh, you know, who, who, who are you and what's your background and where do you come from? So at that particular moment, uh, it's not fair to, to sit there and, and analyze this uh, with that particular perspective. So, but now the presence of Syrian fighters under the operations or under the supervision of the Turkish military uh, was there. Uh, it, it is an unfortunate consequence, like I mentioned, to an escalation led by Hassad. It's not something where we went out and chose and designed. Now, long term, does this pose a, 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 an issue for us? Of course, just like, you know, the presence of mer mercenaries from all other countries uh, poses an issue. However, this came as part of a military agreement with a sovereign country, a NATO member country, uh, a U.S. ally, someone that we trust and someone that we've found to stand by our side at a time of need. So therefore, um, part of the difficult discussion will be how do we backtrack this? How do we uh, eliminate the presence of any foreign fighters, not just Syrians? And, and, and highlighting this only as a, a primary issue, uh, uh, not only is it not fair, but I think it's also another reflection of reality. Now, what has been the consequences of that? You know, from a, uh, a Libyan perspective, uh, the consequence has been, yeah, we found an ally to help us thwart this threat. And we are now having a conversation about what happens next. How do we get rid of Hafsar not only from around Tripoli, but from all of Libya, uh, and to establish a stability and establish an environment where we can go towards a democratic constitutional process. Uh, and having these Syrian fighters as part of that military uh, was a price uh, that we had to pay. Um, and when it came to saving Libyan lives, uh, there is nothing uh, that is gonna let us back off or slow down or reconsider uh, anything that will save Libyan lives and save the, save the, the fate of Libya. Okay, thanks very much for that. Um, now on the uh, Turkey issue, we have a question here, um, a, a different question about Turkey from Jack Dolgarian. Uh, he's asking, what concerns do you have about Turkey forming an agreement with the GNA that established the exclusive economic zone uh, cutting through fellow NATO ally Greece's territory? I'm sorry, but I had a technical problem here. Can you repeat the question? Sorry, Josh. No problem. We can all sympathize with technical problems. Um, so this is from uh, Jack Bulgarian. He's asking, what concerns you have about Turkey forming an agreement with the GNA that established an exclusive economic zone cutting through fellow NATO ally Greece's territory? Um, well, I think the economic agreement is uh, the economic agreement is not um, it's not just a matter of infringing on people's rights or the territories of other countries. I think it's a reflection of you know very very limited uh, understanding of what the agreement actually entails. Um, so uh, the Turkish agreement is part of a internationally uh, an international process of you know signing such agreements, maritime agreements. Uh, this doesn't infringe on any country's right. This is something that is, you know, uh, filed, uh, you know, officially with the UN process. 
Uh, every country has the right to cite such agreements. And by the way, Libya had engaged with Greece in a similar discussion many, many years before it started this discussion with Turkey, and Greece decided or chose not to uh, pursue that option. And at the end of the day, this is something that uh, you know we are open to. We express the, our willingness to, uh, to talk with all Mediterranean countries uh, about how do we mitigate this and how do we make this a win-win situation, and that is still the case. But using this as an excuse to um, you know, say, oh, this was intended in order to destroy the, uh, the fate or the, the, the benefit or to infringe upon the rights of other countries, uh, I think there's, some, there's a, always a hidden message behind it. And I think the whole idea of Turkey establishing a partnership or a strong partnership with Libya uh, concerns a lot of countries. Uh, it took, quite frankly, it concerns, uh, it concerns us as Libyans as well. Um, the, uh, because, you know, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. No, this is something that we want to have uh, an open dialogue about and, and see how we can uh, diversify these relationships economically. Uh, so uh, the idea of saying, oh, this is done out of spite or in order to infringe the, uh, upon the rights of any other country is just not true. Uh, and it is, is really ig ignoring the elephant in the room. And I think this is something that, um, you know, unfortunately, some countries are um, uh, reverted to do that and, and trying to settle scores uh, on Libyan soil uh, that have nothing to do with Libya. Uh, we have an interesting question here from Ben Shaver from uh, Georgetown University. Uh, he's asking, you briefly mentioned the role of Russian bot networks in the conflicts. Can you elaborate on this and on the cyber or information warfare aspects of the conflict more broadly? Yeah, so the cyber warfare and and, you know, Bot networks, and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't really understand a lot of this lingo myself, so I'm, I'm repeating these phrases. But I understand what the complexity is and what the impact is of this, uh, and and I think the United States lived through that and is probably living through that again. So uh, Russia has a very complex and a very powerful um, uh, weapon that a lot of people don't really understand, and that is the ability to manipulate um, social media, to manipulate media outlets, to create this network, very complex network of um, you know, uh, bloggers and, and, and bots and, and, and uh, trolls and, and, you know, all these other different descriptions. Um, and Libya was not exempt from that. In May of 2019, uh, the, uh, you know, the Libyan um, attorney general issued an arrest warrant for two Russians and a Libyan, a third person, involved in a, uh, in a very complex network that was reported uh, later on by many international organizations, including C4 ADS and, and other U.S. organizations that talked about this network. Uh, there was a very in-depth a report also on BBC and other media outlets talking about this. So the, the Russian influence uh, goes far beyond just Wagner, uh, goes far beyond the weapons, goes far beyond the uh, their attempt to control the oil uh, facilities. Uh, so this network is a, is, is, a, is a real threat. And today, uh, these two, uh, Shugali and the other gentlemen who are under arrest in Libya, are the subject of a lot of political posturing and, and tug of war uh, not only between Libya and, and Russia, but also other regional players. Uh, and, and this is not something that we take lightly. Uh, Libyan public opinion uh, is still very, uh, very uh, right. Uh, public opinion is very easily swayed by social media, as is most other countries, but especially in Libya, because the abundance of information or the availability of information is quite limited to social media a lot of times. Uh, so being able to have that kind of access and manipulating information online uh, can have some very damaging effects. Uh, and Russia is using that weapon, uh, unfortunately, to destabilize Libya, uh, Libya uh, as it has in many other countries. 
Um, we now have a question from Bert Chapman. Uh, he's asking how much impact, if any, is COVID-19 having on the fighting in Libya? Um, it, it, well, COVID-19 doesn't know boundaries or doesn't know borders. So yeah, it has the same impact on the individuals and on, on humans uh, as it has in many different countries. However, in Libya, uh, this is, I guess, a hidden lesson. <laughs> when, when you're isolated from the world and it's very difficult to get in and out, um, you know, the exposure to the virus uh, was not as potent or as not as wide as it was in many other countries. Um, however, it's impacted uh, the government's ability to combat this and, and to take measures in order to be prepared for uh, a wider out, uh, outbreak. So up until just yesterday, I think, you know, we've had maybe less than uh, 200 cases uh, or so. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's, you know, within the hundreds of total cases, the number of deaths is, is below 10 still. Uh, and uh, the uh, measures that were taken initially as far as the quarantine, as far as the uh, curfews, as far as you know, the social distancing measures uh, were you know, embraced uh, by the public initially. However, you know, when people saw really that the impact, the human nature uh, you know, uh, wins out here and people start to become more lax and, and, and less strict. Uh, fortunately, you know, relatively speaking, we have not seen a huge spike in numbers. Uh, however, a lot of experts uh, are warning that you know, the, the worst is yet to come in Libya and in other countries. So, we're keeping an eye on that for sure, as, as many others are. The fighting uh, definitely makes or cripples not only the government, but even the society in general. Uh, you don't really get to choose you know, your movements and, and what your social uh, behavior is throughout the day when you've got bombs falling on your head and you've got the threat of life or the, you know, the threat of being killed by bombs or by a virus. A lot of people, I think, will take the risk of combating a virus. Uh, and, and this dictates uh, you know, some very threatening or very dangerous behavior. So, Relatively speaking, it has not impacted us uh, directly, but I think it has been ignored definitely by Haftar and by his militias because you know the, the flights of mercenaries had not stopped coming in from countries uh, in Africa as well as from Syria and and, and Russian mercenaries. Uh, they've completely ignored uh, you know any initiatives that the government has been trying to do in order to send out equipment and uh, PPE uh, uh, materials to different regions, uh, and they've tried to politicize this uh, as much as they can, but. Thank God, you know, relatively speaking, it still has not uh, shown, from at least from a number standpoint, has not shown uh, as much of a, a threat that um, a lot of people were expecting. Thank you. Um, next question here is from uh, Samir Jabara. Uh, he asks, what do you think the prospects are for any power sharing arrangement that can address security sector reform and the unification of military and security institutions? Well, I think the prospects are very high, uh, and, and it's not a very difficult uh, for, for many reasons, and I'll focus on three. One is when you talk about power sharing, um, I think it's a very uh, misleading term because I, I don't think that any one particular entity has enough power consolidated for them to be able to be put in a position to say, oh, you've got to share some of that power. Uh, and I think this is a dynamic that has to be understood. Nobody has enough power in order for them to come and say, okay, I'm gonna dictate what we're gonna negotiate and here's what I'll share and here's what I won't share, et cetera. Uh, Libyans in general uh, have proven many different times in 2011 and with the, uh, the temporary constitutional decree that was adopted in 2014 with the House, uh, sorry, 2012 with the GNC elections, 2014 with the House of Representatives elections, and then the Libyan political agreement. We've proven that when we are 
given the right platform and being able to push out a lot of the proxy players, we are able to, we, we don't have a lot of disagreements. When you really peel the onion, as they say, there's not really deep rooted disagreements that are tangible or that are factual. There, there are some, I'm not ignoring the fact that there are, but uh, that, that there aren't, but the, is, uh, the, the, um, the, the main issues with regards to, you know, the resources, funding, you know, equal distribution of wealth is something that was always, um, you know, hung out there. This is something that all Libyans want. Even those who are in the central government understand that from an operational standpoint, we cannot function and continue to have this centralized government with all the different power and authority centralized in Tripoli. Okay, there's got to be a, a decentralized form of government. So this is something that a lot of people have different views on how to do it, but that is not something that anyone is standing or saying, no, we cannot do that. Everything has to be uh, centralized here within Tripoli, at least anyone who wants you know, to see a, a nation stand up on its feet. Uh, and then the other element that I wanted to focus on is, the, is that achieving a constitutional referendum and going to our subsequent elections is, somewhat, is something that everyone agrees on, okay? And, and, and when I say everyone, I'm saying everyone minus anyone who's in Khalifa Haftar's camp, because I think they've proven what they wanted. Uh, and therefore, achieving that political solution cannot be built on a pillar saying, okay, Khalifa Haftar represents one side and then everybody else is on the other side because it's oil and water. And if, if you, we insist on launching a political solution with that idea of saying, this is what we talk about or what we call power sharing, then it is one, not understanding the reality of the Libya situation. And two, there's not really a, a real political will or desire to arrive at a solution, okay? We're just basically sweeping the problem under the carpet and trying to run forward, hoping that it goes away. So we have to launch the political process with the understanding of that it's a very complex makeup of what, you know, what will reflect the Libyan people's desire, okay? The, uh, without having ballot boxes, it's very difficult to do that. However, there is a mechanism to be able to go across to the different municipalities. You've got a House of Representatives made up of almost 200 people. You've got a Supreme State Council made up of 145 people. I think if you take all of that and, and, and mix it up in, into a, a pot of some kind of a uh, a consortium of, you know, electoral body that can, you know, draft what does that political process look like to get us to a constitutional referendum. And that has to be the milestone. That has to be the checkpoint, okay, that we get to in order for us to be able to move forward. Uh, and then that, that's what will allow the environment for security uh, reform, for economic reform, for fighting and combating some of the corruption or deep, very deep-rooted corruption that we are facing today. Uh, and I think without doing that, and that can be done led by the US. If the US steps in and takes or fills that void, the US is the only one that is uniquely positioned because of its relationship with all these other proxy players. And one very important point that I'll make here is that because of the weight that the US brand carries in Libya. So US is associated with a lot of very positive things in, the, in Libyan people's minds and in its modern history, okay? Starting with the post-World War II and its independence and, and the role that the US has played all the way up to the late John McCain's role and, and his buying into the Libyan and the young Libyan people's ambition of building a free democratic constitutional government and, and so on and so on. Th this is something that is not utilized. This is a political capital that the U.S. owns and has in Libya that it, it's, it, you know, they take several steps behind and let a lot of these proxy players who have other intentions and we see what the result is. These U.S. allies have become assets for Russia, Iran, Syria, and Libya. This is, this is a very strange dynamic. If this doesn't get the attention of the U.S. administration, I don't know what will. So having these allies play this role and become assets for the objectives of what Russia wants in Libya or in the region, uh, this is definitely something that I think should get the attention of the decision makers. And I think 
shifting that policy. And I think there has been some signs already. And there's been a lot of a huge shift in the last 12 to 14 months between where we were in April 2019 and where we are today. Is it enough? Nowhere near enough. Is it fast enough? No. And I think the pace needs to accelerate of what's happening. And a lot of that needs to come a little bit more to the surface. And that can be also by proxy through some of the U.S. allies who are buying into this am ambition, including the Europeans. And I think the Europeans, you know, many officials in the State Department and even the, um, uh, the uh, White House have voiced uh, their concern for the negative role that the Europeans have, have played as well. And the U.S. continues to push Europe to take on a more positive role. However, waiting on that to happen, you know, that's, you know, I don't think it's in our, in anyone, anyone who's on this web call is going to be in their lifetime to see that kind of a shift happen. So I think the U.S. is the only one who is very well positioned uh, to be able to shift uh, the, uh, the, the pendulum here and, and get us back on track in order to arrive at the constitutional uh, democracy in a stable country that can provide a lot of fruits and benefits primarily to the Libyan people first and foremost and then ultimately for all of its friends, allies and neighbors. Well, thanks very much. Um, an interesting question here from uh, Tom Hill from the U.S. Institute of Peace. Both Turkey and Russia seem to be positioning themselves in Libya to gain concession concessions from the other in Syria. Can you speak to the linkage between these two conflicts and the prospects for peace in Libya absent a larger compromise on Syria? Yeah, and this is, Tom, it's an excellent question. And Tom has been someone who's following Libya for a long time and understands the, the complexity of how Libya has been a pawn, unfortunately, in the region for, for such players such as Russia and, and, and others in, in Turkey. And unfortunately, that has been the price that the Libyan people have had to pay. Uh, and however, I think, the situation in Syria has a lot of different factors and a lot of different parameters uh, than what is happening in Libya. So having a correlation of what will happen here will also happen there, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a reality. However, um, if Turkey is not able to gain more concessions uh, in Libya, meaning concessions from Russia, will they be put in a more difficult position in Syria? Possibly. I don't, I don't have an understanding, uh, in-depth at least, understanding of what the end game is for Turkey or Russia in Syria. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm not really that concerned about that, but what I'm concerned about is that Libya's uh, deliverables or the deliverables that Libya can provide for its allies uh, is, are some very positive uh, deliverables that all of these people need, including players such as Russia. However, banking on a Khalifa Haftar-like scenario will guarantee that none of them will achieve these deliverables. Okay, so a stable political situation in Libya will be enable Turkey, Russia, and, and, and many others to be able to benefit economically and, 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 uh, and, and be able to reap some of these fruits. However, destabilizing Libya, and this is where I think the Russian role comes in, is they feel like a, 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 an unstable Libya prolonging the crisis gives them the upper hand because they don't mind dealing with illegitimate militias and, and outlaws and, and, and dealing in the black market and, and going and breaking every single rule. Uh, whereas other countries, you know, have other standards and other uh, constituencies to, to answer to, including in Turkey. So therefore, it's a very, it's a very complex dynamic. Uh, and unfortunately, Libya sometimes comes out on the short end of the stick there when it comes to these, uh, you know, uh, political posturing in the region of, you know, give me this and I'll give you that. Uh, and this is something that we, we cannot bank on. As Libyans, we can only control what happens in Libya and what the fate of Libyans is and uh, you know we would love to be able to listen to the concerns and, and issues that other partners and other you know allies have in other regions, but there's very little that we can actually do to impact that. 
Thanks very much. Um, next question now is uh, from Chris Felt from US Africa Command. What do you think it will take for the different sides to compromise on a political agreement that will serve the common welfare of all actors? Are there new younger national leaders emerging who can draw them together? So yeah, Chris, I think the, what will it take? Uh, and, I, and I think we answered that earlier on in saying that a US role, a strong US leadership stepping in to fill this void, I think is something that can, it's the path of least resistance and also the, the quickest path to be able to arrive at providing a platform for these young leaders to actually step up and, and play a role uh, in, in drawing this up. And going back to the dynamics of former Qaddafi regime, Khalifa Haftar, and then everyone else is gonna come up with the same formula. The Libyan society and the Libyan political uh, topology, if you will, is, is not that. We're, we've moved past that many, many years ago. Even hanging our hat on the tribal makeup and saying, okay, tribal representation into a political solution, that, that is not gonna work. And I'll give you a perfect example for that. In 2012, the GNC elections that I participated in had over 65% participation from Libyans across the country, across different generations, okay? The young, the young, young generation participation in that uh, was very high. What did we get? We got a, a makeup, and, and, and I'm not here evaluating how successful or unsuccessful the GNC was. I'm just talking about the makeup of the membership of it. You had people from very small uh, tribes in the East coming out on top in the elections in some of the cities who are pretty, you know, homogenous when it comes to the tribal makeup. A city uh, in Elbeza, for example, that has you know, the, the Barasa tribe is the primary uh, representation. You had people who are not from that tribe who were elected. Uh, and, and the same same thing happened in, in, in the many, many other cities. Fast forward to 2014, where you had a less than a 17% representation or participation, sorry, in the elections, you had a very polarized tribal makeup, but you have a very few people, you know, hiding behind the tribal representation and standing up and saying people such as Aguila Saleh today, who was supposedly the head of the House of Representatives, yet he's conducting his meeting with tribal leaders from his own tribe, He's having his meetings in his own personal, you know, living room and, and sitting in a very traditional, uh, you know, tribal setting uh, when he is an elected member and heading up a legislative body, supposedly. So this is this is the, the issue. And I think we have to move past that dynamic. We have to be able to empower the young Libyans, empower people who are actually buying into the civilian government, buying into a constitutional uh, form of government that will basically lay out the rules and the laws that everyone can participate in. Uh, and I think this is something that the U.S. is in a unique position to do, uh, either through the U.N.-led process or an alternative track to uh, political process. And I think bringing people from the H.O.R., from the Supreme State Council, from the municipalities who are all elected members and having that be the core representation of a platform to be able to move forward in order to get us to a constitutional uh, referendum, that is the formula I think that will work. Next question here is from uh, Mangi Daoudi from the Libyan American Alliance. Egypt was a big supporter to Haftar and his attack on Tripoli and his ambitions in Libya more generally. Now that the tides have turned, what role do you think Egypt still has in a political settlement in Libya? And what's your opinion on the role of Tunisia and Algeria? Look, I mean, I think the role of all of Libya's neighbors is important. And I think establishing stability and arriving at a political solution within Libya cannot happen without the buy-in and the support of all of its neighbors, no exclusion, including Egypt, who is part of the problem, who is part of the, the military onslaught 
and they they bet on a losing horse. And this is the situation that Egypt is in today. They found themselves betting on a losing horse. That horse has come back to them with you know all these wounds and, and basically beat up and not able to deliver all the promises that they've set. And they found themselves in a situation between a rock and a hard place, between a, you know their other allies and this axis of evil who are insisting that Egypt continues to play this logistical role and continues to provide weapons and open up its borders to Hafsa, and between a lot of other, including some of their military intelligence leadership who are saying, no, this is not only a, a losing horse, this is a destructive horse. And we need to be able to establish a relationship with the legitimate government, uh, be uh, sit at the negotiating table and represent the Egyptian interests. And this is something that is welcomed. Now, can Egypt go from a, you know, country providing all these weapons and, and actually carrying out airstrikes and killing Libyans to a peace negotiator right away? No, of course not. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. There's got to be some trust building. There's got to be some tangible uh, steps taken by Egypt in order for them to show that commitment that they're willing to be part of a long-term political process. But at this point, Egypt continues to be a problem, continues to be a source of the problem. And until they end that immediately, and I think they've started with this idea of bringing Agila Saleh and Khalifa Hafsar in a very um, uh, orchestrated, uh, I'm, I'm not even going to call it an initiative, it's not an initiative, it's, it was a show, an, an exhibition this past Saturday, uh, where they basically brought up Khalifa Hafsar to show that he is no longer the, the, uh, their pony, he is no longer the horse that they're betting on, and he is no longer the person that's representing the East in their opinion. And, and I think that, that was achieved. Now, the idea of this whole political uh, proposal that uh, Sisi threw out there, that's a bunch of baloney. I mean, that just completely ignores the whole Lipian political agreement. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily really the, the, the gist of the, of the proposal out there. And like I said, it's basically to put Egypt out there as a peace broker. And this is something that nobody is buying. Uh, Egypt needs to do a lot more and needs to take a lot more tangible steps, including closing the border for all this military support, continuing to put pressure on Agila Saleh and the House of Representatives to uh, operate as one body. You've got all, more than half of the House of Representatives who have, uh, have refused to recognize Aguila Saleh as their head. That is something that needs to be addressed. And then Egypt also needs to take tangible steps uh, with the government of national accord in order to show their intent to be a part of the solution going forward. And there's many, many, many steps that still need to be taken. And until then, uh, yeah, Egypt will still be seen as part of the problem. And unfortunately, uh, Libya's stabilization, a lot of that relies or it depends on Egypt's uh, change in, in behavior. And this is something that we hope that the U.S. can play a role in and continuing to exert pressure. And I think the administration has already started. Thanks. Um, so a similar question from our own Nicole Robinson here at Heritage. Uh, she's saying, how do you think the military support uh, to Haftar that the UAE and Jordan have provided will impact bilateral relations with Libya in the future? Well, again, it, it is left uh, a lot of wounds, uh, okay? So this military support is not just a matter of supporting one military force versus the other. This is military support that led, into, led, led to thousands of lives being lost, billions of dollars of destruction. It's led to the instability of the country and, and, and tearing up the fabric of the Libyan society. So the impact uh, that this role has played uh, cannot, you know, you, we can't just turn the page and ignore all of this and say, okay, let's, you know, let bygones be bygones and move forward uh, as much as maybe some people would like to. Um, I think the, the benchmark will be what is in the Libyan people's interest. Does Libya really have any interest in a direct bilateral relationships with the UAE? 
I'm very seriously, you know, it's very difficult to find one thing that the Libyan society or Libyan people need from the UAE that nobody else has. So we are not really in need of establishing relationships whatsoever or reconciling with the UAE, at least in the short term. Now, in the long term, if things change and the UAE goes through many different changes, that's a different story and we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, however, today, uh, the UAE has been nothing but a, a source of evil, a source of death, a source of corruption, a source of enabling uh, a military dictator in his network uh, to thwart uh, the ambitions of the Libyan people to establish a, a, a democratic, constitutional, prosperous country. Uh, and, uh, and for Jordan, it's a little bit of a different situation. I think Jordan is in a, um, a lot of, their fate is not necessarily controlled by them. I think a lot of this is in, imposed on them. Uh, however, they've, you know, including in the UN panel of expert reports, it showed how they played a logistical role and played a, um, you know, as a hub uh, for a lot of these weapons flowing into Khalifa Haftar. And I think Jordan needs to answer to that. They need to step up and, and, and admit that role and admit that they made a mistake. Uh, and then uh, we can start talking about reconciling that. The relationship between Libya and Jordan is a lot healthier than it is with Libya and the UAE. Uh, I think in the short term and, and even medium term, uh, Jordan leads Libya. Uh, and I think Libya, you know, to a certain extent needs a, a good solid relationship with Jordan. However, what they did uh, is something that they have to be held accountable for and they have to answer to. Uh, and this is something that I think can be reconciled in the in the immediate future if, if the Jordanian government uh, is willing to, um, to, uh, to, you know, step up and, and take responsibility for that. And I think there are some level-headed, very strong, you know, patriotic and, 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 uh, and, and positive players in the Jordanian a circle of influence and, and the decision-making process to where that can be a reality. Uh, I can't say the same for the UAE. Thanks. Um, and we're, we're pretty rapidly running out of time here. So um, I'll again use um, the moderator's privilege and ask the last question. Uh, we've talked uh, a lot about uh, or a fair amount about the Russian mercenaries, but obviously there's other mercenaries involved here, uh, specifically Chadians and Sudanese. Um, the uh, Sudan, of course, has a new government. Uh, could you discuss a little bit about what is the GNA's relationship with the new Sudanese government, given that there are Sudanese mercenaries uh, on uh, fighting on the side of Haftar, uh, two separate groups actually of, of Sudanese mercenaries. Uh, and with whom do you speak um, specifically within the Sudanese government? Because you obviously have mm -hmm. a military component, a civilian component. Uh, and then finally, what is Heftar's relationship with the Sudanese government? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not really that directly involved in the diplomatic relationships between the, our government and, and Sudan. So I'm speaking of from my personal uh, perspective and uh, from my uh, experience also as a Libyan uh, living in exile in Sudan at a very early part of my life. Uh, so I have a, a very unique uh, affection for Sudan, for the Sudanese people. Uh, and also, um, you know, understand that they've, they've gone through and they're going through a lot of things that we, we went through or, or are going through as well. Um, what's happening as far as the mercenaries that have, um, you know, made their way into Libya and how responsible is the Sudanese government, the current government, and that, that's something that is very difficult to answer. Uh, however, there are some elements in the government, such as Ahmedi, who is one of the militia leaders that made his way into the political uh, settlement in Sudan and is part of the decision-making uh, within the government. Uh, it's proven that he was uh, a, a very big part of these forces, but it was basically a, um, you know, guns for hire kind of thing. The UAE or Saudi Arabia provided the funds for that, 
uh, and he provided the, the boots and, and, and the weapons. And I don't think it necessarily goes beyond that. I don't think there's a fundamental ideological uh, objective behind this. I don't think there's a fundamental economic objective, uh, meaning to, to the impact of the Sudanese government. It's impacting the pockets of a lot of these uh, mercenaries uh, or the, the, the mercenary leaders uh, and the, the, out, the network of outlaws that are in the region. Uh, and I think we have to deal with this, with the Sudanese government uh, as that, as this is a joint problem. This is not just a problem for Libyans. Uh, these weapons and these mercenaries that are brought into Libya, uh, once the funds dry out and the pipeline is, is shut off as far as who's paying them, okay, are these people going to just disappear? No, they're going to go somewhere else and be a source of a problem, including inside of Sudan. So this is something that has to be addressed jointly with the Sudanese government. Uh, I don't know that we have enough uh, confidence or trust with Ahmed himself, someone who's lived all of his life as an outlaw and as a mercenary uh, to a certain extent, uh, and as a broker for uh, for uh, military activity and, and, and you know outside the law, uh, I think we need to go beyond that and deal with the political civilian leadership uh, in Sudan because I think they're the ones who have the mutual interest uh, that we have in establishing a, a, a stability um, not only on our borders but overall within the region. Uh, and again, the, the proxy player role here, meaning the UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, and Egypt's influence on what's happening in Sudan. Uh, is is not you know is not that much different from what's happening in Libya. So I think the Sudanese people are victim uh, of the same interventions that we are facing in Libya, and I think the Libyan government and the Sudanese government understand that. And this is where the opportunity for uh, combating this issue jointly. Uh, and again, I think this is something that is uh, definitely uh, workable with the Sudanese government. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, well, unfortunately, uh, we are uh, out of time here. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is obviously a pivotal moment in uh, the Libyan struggle. We hope that this will lead to uh, stability and peace and that the bloodshed and the violence there will stop. Um, Thank you again. It's so useful to hear from someone who's so heavily involved in um, in you. the day to day, uh, and we appreciate your frankness. Thank you for for taking some hard questions, uh, uh, tackling those, and uh, we hope you'll you'll come back and visit us at some point. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners out there. Uh, it was great to have you join us. Thank you for the excellent questions. We had some stacked up here, but uh, unfortunately ran a bit out of time. But uh, appreciate your uh, your participation as well. Thank you, Josh, and I want to thank the Heritage Foundation, everybody, and the Heritage Foundation for this opportunity and hope that this dialogue continues and that we take some uh, tangible steps. And I call on those who are from the U.S. government and, and on the Hill as well, listening to reach out and, and to see how we can continue to build on this. And I think we've got the positive momentum going in the right direction. Heritage Foundation had, you know, has played a, a, a good role in this uh, thus far, and I think can continue to do that in trying to influence the decision makers uh, with NDC, and I appreciate your effort and uh, uh, and the entire Heritage Foundation's team's effort. Well, thank you, and and you can see on your screen there um, the Twitter handles for both of us. That's that's um, in today's day and age, a frequently a good way to be in contact if you want to. Uh, so thank you again to you all. Thank you especially to Mr. Abdallah, and hope to see you soon. And stay safe. Thank you. <laughs>